So, because we're not going through another series right now, um, and we're a little bit in between another book of the Bible, felt led to uh, to go into Romans chapter seven, which will be the Revelation this morning, and then the illustration of the Revelation will be Genesis chapter twenty one. And then we'll round it up with the application. That's how we want to study and teach the Bible, is what is revelation, illustration, application. Revelation is Romans chapter 7, verse 13 and following. The illustration is Genesis chapter 21. And the title of the message is, Cast Out the Bondwoman and Her Son, Life in the Spirit. Cast Out the Bondwoman and Her Son, Life in the Spirit. And so, let's look. Here, and if you're physically able, in reverence for God's precious work, can you stand with me as we read from it this morning? Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of the living God. And I pray now, Lord, that we're not approaching it here to be informed, but we're approaching it to be transformed. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to, our hearts to be open up to what you have to say and close to all distractions and everything that would lure us away from what you would say to us this morning. Till the soul of our heart, make us ready and receptive to receive the living word. Grow deeper roots in our heart as our root system reaches out for that word that's down there where the moist moisture is in the soil so that we grow thereby, so that we can grow strong roots downward so that we would bear fruit upward. Because we know that you're glorified by fruitfulness And the opposite is true, that fruitlessness robs you of the glory you're due. And we don't want to live fruitless lives. 
We want to live fruitful lives. Not so that we would be commended or praised, but so that you would be glorified. Because we know that you made it clear to us that by this the Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. That's the greatest thing we could pray this morning, is that we would bear much fruit, because we know that by that you're glorified. And that's why we're here, to bring glory and honor to your name. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you for standing. The Apostle Paul, in talking about justification, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, speaks of the fact that we're justified by faith and what all that means. That's the revelation. The illustration that he uses to illustrate that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works is Abraham in in Romans chapter 4. Abraham's a progenitor of Christian faith. He's the father of the Jew, but if you look at him, his life patterns, our lives pattern his testimony and his ours in the way that we're saved. And so Paul uses him in Genesis 15, 6 to show that Abraham's life illustrates that the way he was saved illustrates that justification is by faith because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then as Paul, Paul moves on and begins to talk about sanctification, the inner work, and I guess you could, you could bet one of the ways you could summarize it is that when Paul leaves the doctrine of justification and moves on into sanctification, he's speaking in justification of the work of the cross for you and me. But in sanctification, he's, work, he's speaking of the work of the cross in you and me. There is the work of the cross for me in salvation. And then in sanctification and growing into Christ's likeness, there's the work of the cross in me. And that's what he's speaking of here. Well, rather than drawing on some biblical character in order to draw out the illustration, here, this is so intensely personal to him as it is to you and I because we all share in that verse. Every one of us can read that passage right there and go, Aha, uh-huh, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly what he's talking about. The very thing I want to do, I wind up not doing. The very thing that I don't want to do, I wind up doing. What in the world is wrong with me? And so rather than Paul using Abraham or Noah or Moses to illustrate his point, he uses himself. See, it'd be hard for me to speak to the individual struggles even though ours are similar because we all go through the same thing. But it's hard for me to speak with, with, uh, it'd be difficult for me to speak about what Greg struggles with and him for me. But I can speak to you about what I struggle with. So the Apostle Paul gets intensely personal here and very vulnerable. By this time, when Paul's writing this, he's not a new convert. He's an apostle. This is not the testimony of a new convert. This is not the testimony of somebody who's a babe in Christ. This is the testimony of somebody who's moved on to great spiritual maturity. Now, he'd be the last one to say that. The people who are most spiritually mature are the ones who are the most hesitant to ever say it. Because humility is what helped get them to spiritual maturity and certainly sustains it. There's no spiritual pride in a person who's spiritually mature. If there is, that's a mark of immaturity. And so what does he do? He comes and he talks about this intense struggle and we can all identify with it and it makes it encourages me because I'm thinking, man, this is a big shot apostle. This guy wrote 13, possibly 14 books of the 27 books of the New Testament, and yet he has that kind of struggle. 
So we can, we can remember this morning, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such is common to man. It's not like, see, the devil just loves to get us off in a corner somewhere and say, well, guess what? Nobody else struggles the way you do. And if they knew about it, nobody had anything to do with you, including God. And he does know about it. And he's tired of you. And he tries to isolate us and get us to the point where we think our struggle is unique. Oh, there's something. You're a mutant. You're a mutant Christian. And you barely got in. I can't believe you're in. And maybe not even you're in at all. And nobody has the problems that you have. And then we go read Romans chapter 7 and say, you know what, that's just, just not true. The Apostle Paul. But look what it is. Now, the Apostle Paul is not living in denial, even though it might sound like it. Because look what he says. I've got this tension within me. But look what it says. But because the Lord lives in me, and because I have an appetite and desire to do what's right even though I don't do it, or not to do what's wrong even though I do it and participate in it, look what it says. For what? Verse 15. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. But for what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, I wind up doing. You ever go into a situation where you know there's going to be somebody that's difficult? There and you're just going in there going like, this time I'm gonna love them. This time I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give in to the same old pattern. I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do it. And then you get in the middle of it and go, mm, I lost my temper. I lost my cool. Even though nobody might not know it on the inside, I did. And the very thing that I wanted to do in this situation, I wind up doing the polar opposite. Well, look what he says. I hate that. I don't do it, but that's what I wind up doing. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now, listen to verse 17. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Then he says that again. Look at verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, look what he says. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And you would think, if you didn't probe into this verse and this passage, the Apostle Paul is living in denial. He's just made up a straw argument and said, okay, it's not me, it's that man. It's not my fault. That sounds like the Garden of Eden. Oh, the woman that you gave me caused me to sin. It's not the same thing. What he's saying is this. I have a new identity. I was once in Adam and I'm in Christ. And when I act inconsistent with who I am, I'm going to lay the blame where it belongs. And it belongs in my flesh. I am in Christ. Even though I often don't act like I'm in Christ, I'm still in Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm still in Christ. It doesn't make that any less true. Now I want that to be less and less characteristic of me. But it doesn't make it any less true that I am now in Christ. I was once in Adam and just because I'm acting like I'm in Adam doesn't mean I'm in Adam now. I don't go bebopping back and forth. I don't go here. Now I'm in Adam. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. It's wrong to even say, and I've done it before and I've got to quit. Oh, I was in the flesh. No. I'm in Christ. I just drew upon the flesh. But it's the sin that dwells in me until I'm fully redeemed in future glory and positional righteousness and practical righteousness. But in the meantime, just because I'm acting that way doesn't mean I am that way. That's huge. 
This is not a man who was a dishonest man. This wasn't a man who played games with semantics. This was written under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is no longer I who do it. He's not not taking responsibility for it. He's not shifting the blame. He's just saying, I'm, when I do what I don't want to do, and when I don't want to do what I do want to do, it still does not mean I'm not now a new man in Christ. I'm a new man in Christ. It's high time we believe that. It's high time we believe that. Dear ones, we have got to come to the point where we come into agreement with what God says about a man or a woman who is in Christ. You do not go from Adam to Christ all day long. Well, I do whatever to Adam. Now I'm in Christ. And now I'm in Adam. I'm in Christ now. I'm in Adam. I'm in Christ now. Like that. It's not that at all. You are in Christ if you're a redeemed person. You are in Christ. And when you and I act out the flesh, we are not doing what comes natural. We're acting unnaturally. Used to, when I was in Adam, it was my nature to sin. I couldn't do anything but that. A lost person can do nothing but sin. Everything a lost person does is sinful. Everything. Even the things that look on the surface to be good are evil. Don't you remember, we talked about this before. What determines whether or not an act is good or not? Is it the surface? That's good and that's characteristically bad? Is it even the outcome? People were blessed by that, it must be good. People were hurt by that, it must be bad. No. What is it that determines whether or not an act is good or not? Origin. Where it came from. The source. If it comes from Adam, it's sinful. If it comes from Christ, it's good. Period. End of subject. But when you or I were baptized into Christ, He doesn't out, He doesn't reverse. You know, it's not like, it's almost as if we have this mental picture that there's a spiritual baptism that takes place and somebody filmed it. And then, and then you show it on the screen and you do it in reverse. And we come out of the water and we go back and we're hurled back over here into this other position. And then we'll get right with God and we'll go back over here and be baptized again. And then this goes to reverse, baptized. That's, like not ex- that's not how it works. The moment that you got saved, the moment that I got saved, the moment I repented toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptized me into the spiritual death burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that is a permanent condition. Praise His name. For me to act in, in, in an uncharacteristic way, for me to sin, is uncharacteristic for me. It is not who I am as a Christian. It's not who you are. And the devil would love for us to fall into the trap of believing, well, that's just how you are. That's just who you are. That's just who you are. And the Apostle Paul said, you know what? That wasn't who I am. That's a sin that still dwells within me that I still struggle with, but that is not who I am. If you went and had surgery and they removed your appendix and uh, your surgeon wasn't paying attention to what he was doing and left the scalpel inside you and sewed you up and the scalpel was in there and you're on your side and then you go home you're thinking everything's fine. You're great. And then you turn around and one day you're putting on your tennis shoes or you're getting ready for whatever and you bend over and you have a, just a sharp pain in your side. You're going, whoa, hold on just one second. And you go look and they light you up on the x-ray or however and find out, my, we left the scalpel in there. Well, you know what? The scalpel was inside you, but it wasn't you. 
There's a foreign contagion inside you. And, 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 and they'll remove it and put it out. And it manifests itself when you moved a certain way. And it caused pain. Sin's the same way. There's a foreign contagion in you and I. It's called sin. And until we get to future glory, we still got to deal with it. But I want you to know something. It might be in you, and you might still, still struggle with it, but it's not you. That is not you. And now we've got to come high time. We've got to agree with what God says about us. We've got to get to the point where we agree with what God says. That's what faith is. God says it, and I agree with it. There used to be a saying that went around in Christendom back in my grandfather's days. And my grandfather used to call him out on it. He was as bold as a lion. And it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And my grandfather used to say, God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. But, we do need to come to a place where we appropriate it by faith and say, no, that's what God says. See, the devil wants you and I to go on experience. All false teaching is predicated upon this. They elevate experience above truth. And when you elevate experience above truth, you have no way of calibrating whether or not your experience is valid or not or sifting through it or seeing it through the prism of biblical truth and you will be deceived. Two times, this honest apostle, I see him. I, I, apart from Christ, the person I admire most in the Bible would be Paul. God has used him to bless my life and, I, I, and, 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 I, and I've studied him over and over and over again. And I'd see him as being an intensely beautiful man who was intensely honest. There wasn't a shred of pride in him. And I guarantee you, if you were sitting there talking to Paul and he had a stroke, he'd admit it to you. He wouldn't try to put up a facade. He's very honest, very vulnerable. He gets very vulnerable in this text. And the Apostle Paul, the big shot of the Apostle Paul, wrote this. And Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show you and I that the same struggles we have, we are enjoyed by all. And the key to getting out of it is to cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, I want us to, that's the revelation. The struggle. The struggle. First principle, when you sin, if you are a believer, that is not you. You are in Christ. You don't suddenly go into Adam and then you get unbaptized and go back into Christ and back into Adam and back into Christ. When you are in Christ, there's only two type of people in the world. That's it. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're not in Adam. And if you're in Adam, you're not in Christ. They're mutually exclusive. Well, so how do we deal with it? Well, it's illustrated for us in a beautiful way in Genesis chapter 21. And we've been through this before. This is intensely important. And I want us to look at Genesis chapter 21. Now we have the biblical permission, and we'll go look at it here in a moment, to make the types what we're going to see here. And what I mean by that is, we have biblical permission in Galatians. We have biblical permission from the Holy Spirit to make this typology. Ishmael represents the flesh, and Isaac represents the spirit. Now, Isaac is also a type of Jesus Christ, but that's another message. We can't go there this morning. But, he's a type of Christ in some beautiful ways. But, in this passage, our concern here this morning is to see that he's also not just a type of Christ, but he is a type, which is identical, but 
in a different way of application. He is a type of life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the new man. And Ishmael is a type of the flesh. And that would be Adam. Now, if you'll look through the Scriptures, you ever notice this, that in the Scriptures, God in Genesis makes a habit of taking the first child and not giving him the inheritance and wind up giving it to the second one. You ever notice that? Think about it. Cain and Abel. Cain was born first. Abel second born. Who gets the blessing? Who's the, who's the one that God affirms? The younger. Abel. Ishmael and Isaac, same thing. Ishmael was born first. Isaac born second. Isaac's a child of promise. Ishmael is rejected. Esau and Jacob. They're twins. Esau comes out first. Jacob comes out second. Esau forfeits his birthright and his inheritance that comes along with it and then swindled and cheated out of it by Jacob, the blessing, the birthright. And it goes to the younger instead. Now God said that was going to happen. The means by which it happened, God wasn't in. That was Jacob and his shenanigans. But it was already said that that was going to happen. The message for us is this. God only works through the second birth. That's the message. God only works through the second birth. The first one was rejected. You know, when I got saved, God, I don't, when, when you and I were born into sin, what did we offer God, spiritually speaking? Absolutely nothing. The Bible says that we were born, what? Dead in trespasses and sins, that He hath made us alive together uh, by grace are you saved through Christ. We are spiritually dead when we're born the first time with no capacity for spiritual life, no appetite for spiritual life, no seeking of God, no desire to glorify Him. We're born spiritual rebels. That's it. That's who we are. But then there comes a day, then there comes a day, hallelujah, where the Holy Spirit comes, and after convicting us and showing us our sin, gives us the gift of repentance and faith in Him, and we're born again. That's the second birth. God can't do anything with us through the first man. The guy can only work and does work through the second one. So these births, and the reason it goes to the second instead is to communicate to us that all along, God only works through the second birth. The Bible says the flesh profits nothing. And the Bible says that the flesh is at enmity with God. It's one thing to be enemies. If you're enemies, you can reconcile. If you're at enmity, that's a condition that's unalterable. In other words, they're never going to reconcile. God is never going to say, oh, let's just forget and forgive and go on. No. God came to kill my flesh, not to improve it. This will hit you the wrong way, maybe. And don't, don't, if, you, if you want to talk to me about it, come directly to me. And if, this is, if I mess up on this, I'll make it right from the pulpit. But I want you to know something. In a practical sense, not positionally, but in practical sense, the new birth does not alter the flesh. When you got saved, it did not make your flesh any better than it was when you got saved. It's still as wicked as ever. That's why Christians can do wicked things. The new birth does not touch the flesh in practice. In position, it kills it. In practice, God is killing it. But it doesn't make it any better. There's no such thing as sanctified flesh. As a matter of fact, all of the trouble that we have as a church and the influence that we've lost in our culture is because of sanctified flesh. It's because we've slapped Jesus' name onto our fleshly way of living and confused everybody. 
You don't. It's like trying to dress up a pig. You could put lipstick on it. You can change it. You can blow dry its thin hair. You can do whatever you want to do with it, but it's still a pig. And there's nothing more foul and nothing more confusing and nothing more offensive to God than a dressed up flesh. Dressed up flesh. Now, so we've got Ishmael and Isaac. There are three things that happen in this scenario that I want you to look at carefully with me. There are three things that happen in Isaac's life, the man of spirit. Keep in mind, when you're looking at Isaac here, you're talking about the spiritual man. When you look at Ishmael, you're talking about the fleshly man. Three things that happened to him. Here they are. He was born, he was circumcised, and he was weaned. See it? Watch this. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, boy, we could preach on that, couldn't we? The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and he did for Sarah as he had spoken. You could put your name in there. The Lord visited you as he said, and he did for you as he has spoken when he saved you. And it says, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. All right, there's his birth. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. So also she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age? We talked about this before, but any biology class at Emory University could explain the birth of Ishmael. But the birth of Isaac was supernatural. That's exactly the way your birth and second birth, your, your first birth and second birth. You can explain your first birth by the biological processes that God has put in place as creator, and you can explain it. But you cannot explain the second one. And so this is the new birth. It's a picture of salvation. Born of the Spirit. Now, supernatural. The second birth. And the Bible says in John chapter 1, look at it. It's a new birth. It's a brand new thing. John chapter 1, look at verse 12 and 13. And we talked about this when we were talking about our witnessing series. This is a picture of the salvation. Look at what it says in verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Look at this verse. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. The second birth. Except ye be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Is born of God. So he was born. It's a picture of salvation. And then, on the eighth day, he was circumcised. In the Bible, in the Bible, the word, uh, I mean, the, uh, the number eight uh, signifies, the number eight means this. A new beginning. A new beginning. And when his, when, his, when his circumcision took place, if you follow the typology in the Bible, the circumcision signifies the casting off of the filthiness of the flesh. The filthiness of flesh. And the reason the organ that is chosen for that to happen is that that's the male organ through which the curse is translated and transferred. The seed of Adam is transferred. 
And so it's a picture of how that's got to change. There's got to be a new man created. There's got to be something new. And so on the eighth day, which is a day of new beginning, the filthy of the flesh is taken off. It is a picture of us, a physical picture of a spiritual reality, and that is this, that God in Christ circumcises your heart. So we have the circumcision of the flesh, but it's a symbol of the circumcision of the heart. It's spoken of, if you'll look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let's go look at it. For, and y'all, you can write down these references and follow them later. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a spiritual circumcision. It's the new covenant. It's where God makes His residence within a man who was dead and trespasses and sins, comes in, makes us alive, and begins the process, positionally already finished, practically the process of conforming us into the image of His Son by taking our flesh out of the way and moving us into the spirit man. Now, that's the circumcision. The, 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 the whole thing began with the birth. The circumcision is another part of the journey where we begin to grow in Christ's likeness. And then comes the weaning. The Bible says that Isaac was weaned. Did you know back in Bible times, a child was often the case that a child was nursed by their mother even up to five years old. That's why we look back at, remember, uh, Moses. And uh, uh, Moses, when he slew the Egyptian, the Bible says in Acts chapter 7, when it talks about that incident, that the reason Moses did that, even though it was, he, got, he got ahead of God, is he knew already that he was going to be the deliverer. Why did he know? Because his mother had nursed him and told him, Son, God gave me some promises about you. As a matter of fact, I put you in a basket down the Nile River, and now you're living with Pharaoh, but that's not why you're here. The reason you're here is because God's going to do a job to you. He's going to deliver us from bondage. You're the deliverer that God raised up. He promised me so. And the whole time he's there nursing on his mother. Because remember, he was raised by Pharaoh, but he's still nursed by his mother, Jacobin. She told him, told him, guys, ladies and gentlemen, speak promises to your children, even if they're an infant. And then further on, you can speak God's word to them. If you, if you think they got to grow up so they can get sophisticated to hear it, you're wrong. That's just not true. Let them hear it. Speak what God showed you. Speak it into their ear. Speak it into their ear at night, even if they're not going to be able to hear. You know, and say that, take those promises, latch on to them, but don't you give up no matter what, no matter what age they are. And so she spoke, and he knew he was supposed to be delivered. That's why he did that. So three to five years. So somewhere along that time period, Ishmael, I mean, Isaac is weaned. Every child of God starts out on milk. There's nothing wrong with it. It would be unnatural for a child of God not to start out on milk. Isn't it true? It's as unnatural for a child of God not to start out on milk as it is for a baby not to start out on milk. Susan's nursing her baby right now and got a brand new Timothy. And I haven't yet seen her give him steak. If she does, we're going to be in all trouble. It's natural for Timothy to want the milk from his mother because that's what... It's the only thing you can handle. And we hear the tenets of the faith. We hear the doctrines of the faith, the deity of Christ, the one way of salvation, all of these things. We never move beyond them. 
But we start there, and then we move on into Christian maturity. Now, we'll come back to this for a minute, but there are three times at least that the Bible speaks of that. That's 1 Peter 2, 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 5, talking about the milk, the milk, the milk, the milk. But I want you to look at something. Look at, go back to Genesis chapter 21, if you will, please. Genesis chapter 21, the Bible says that on the occasion of the weaning, this is the weaning now. Remember, he's born again from birth. The circumcision, where he's casting off, and he's a spiritual cleansing going on, where the flesh is being renounced and, and, and laid aside, doing things that should be doing and not doing things you shouldn't do. Normally, we restrict that to just not what, you know, many Christians define themselves by what they don't do. Christian growth is defining yourself by not only what you don't do, but what now you can, you're free to do what you ought to do. And he's weaned. Look what it says. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Hmm. Hmm. The father celebrated the spiritual growth of the son. That sound familiar? Look at certain, look at Second John chapter one. Verse 14. That's how God looks at you and I. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about the fact? Sometimes we picture God as he's just he's got this look on his face and he's just constantly upset at us. He's just constantly upset. We just we try his patience and, and he's just looking at us all the time like oh, there you go again. There you go again. He's patient, he's loving toward us. One time I showed a film in our Sunday school class. Catherine, when she was first running to walk. And we had a film. You know, you take films of everything they do, especially the first one. You know, you go down the hallway of her, and we got pictures every time she ever moved. We go, <gasps> And so we took film of her walking, and I was standing there across from the, you know, the chair across the living room, and she's stumbling, and she stumbled and fell. And as soon as she fell, I got up and took my belt off and spanked the tar out of her. I said, I can't believe that you couldn't take one step. You think that's what I did? No. But she took one step and I went, she took a step. And we acted like idiots like parents do. You know what I'm saying? We did it. My child took a step. The smartest child ever lives. She walked, she walked before anybody's ever walked. I can't believe it. She's a genius. <laughs> if I'm a foul, messed up, in need of getting corrected father who looks that way toward his children, what do you think God looks and how God acts toward his children who stumble and fall but yet get up again? And he helps pick them up again. And he doesn't lose patience with them like we lose patience. He is loving, affirming, long-suffering. But when those steps turn into a walk and they turn into a stride, God gets excited. He throws a feast like Abraham did and said, Hallelujah! Hallelujah, because look what it says. Look at look what it says in Second uh, John 1, 4. And every parent in here can relate to this, but don't just restrict it to parents and children. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. I rejoice greatly when I found out they were walking in truth. Nothing brings parental satisfaction more than knowing your children are walking in truth. Amen? 
3 John 1, 4, and most parents in here could quote this. This might be your life verse. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's what God's disposition is toward His children when they begin to get off the milk and they start to get into the meat. He's joyful over all of them. But when He sees that happen, He is giddy. They threw a party. They threw a party. And guess what? Who got to participate in the party? Isaac. Isaac. Sometimes I feel sorry for Andrew. Because the only thing he's seen in Disney World was people's knees. So as far as Andrew's concerned, the only thing he knows about Disney World is the front and back of people's knees. Because he was so young when we went there, that's all he saw. Us and 800 billion people there. And he's walking through there and instead of getting to see everything, Andrew's just down there like that. He's so little, he has no memory of Disney World. But no, no, this guy has memories because Isaac said, when I got weaned and I started making spiritual progress, we threw a party, hallelujah. Man, that honeymoon love continued. But look what wound up happening. Look at it. Verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Listen to me. This son, even though he is the son of the flesh, he had been with Abraham some 14 years. And I want you to know something. Abraham loved his son. He loved Ishmael. I mean, you know, there was, there was there was there were years where Abraham, you know, Abraham took matters into his own hands. Yes, Abraham uh, uh, helped God out. And by the way, Christian growth is when you come to the point, and I come to the point where we quit trying to help God change us, and just rest in the fact that He's already changed us positionally, and He's willed to change us practically. But he was satisfied with him. He loved his son. There was affection between his son. This was his son. This was his son after all. We can look at it from a distance and go, oh, that's Ishmael. He's the, he's the progenitor of the Arab nation. Get him out. He's going to be a troublemaker anyway. Sure enough, he's proved to be a troublemaker since then. No. That was Abraham's son. And now he's got Sarah saying, you know what? You're going to get rid of this boy because this is not the one that we've been waiting on. This is not the one through whom God had made the promises. And she was right. Now, we don't know what her motives were. She just ticked off. She said, you know what? There's not room enough for two of us. And I'm telling you this right now. It's not my son that's going to leave. But look, verse 12. God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I'll also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Sarah was right. Look what it says. Son of Hagar. Born to Abraham, scoffing at Isaac. Now, your translation may say laughing. 
or it might have a marginal note that says laughing there. But let's go, let's go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 29 to see what that meant. We've got a New Testament interpretation of what happened here. New Testament light on this. Read Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. It says, let's go back to 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. All right, look at that word. As he who was born according to the flesh, who is that? Ishmael. Persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, who is that? Isaac. All right, he persecuted him. So scoffing with New Testament light comes into the fact that that word persecuted, from which the word persecuted is translated, is a Greek word, D-I-O-K-O. Dioko. And it means this, to put to flight and to drive away. So this older son is picking on the younger one. And what he's trying to do is, is he's trying to get him out. And he's in the way. They're competing interests here. Now it's amazing, up until that time they were fine. But as soon as he was weaned, then there's a problem. Think it not strange as a fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Listen, when you run into problems in the Christian life and you run into difficulty, don't listen to some name it, claim it, confess it, possess it, false teacher and say, why did this happen? You didn't look at it and go, why would it not happen? Why would it not happen? The testing of your faith is something precious. It's something to be valued. It's not something to scorn. We don't, we don't like it. But we should never resent it because it's the means by which God conforms us into the image of His Son. There's no, nothing strange about it. It's to be expected. So the fight begins after the weaning. When the birth took place, everything's fine. Circumcision, uh, weaning. This, this son's really becoming a problem now. Now there's this fight. There's this conflict between the flesh and the spirit that goes on and it reaches a fevered pitch. Somebody has got to go or there's not going to be peace in this home. Somebody's got to go. Does they? Somebody's got to go. And neither one of them want to leave. It's not like they're saying, oh, well, you can have it. No, they're still competing. This is what winds up happening. A lot of people are left alone by the enemies that are arrayed against us because they're not even growing in Christ's likeness anyway. So everything is just kind of smooth and easy and everything's just, just, just great. Or seems to be. But there's no Christ's likeness. The fact that there is tension is encouraging because it gives way to growth if we respond biblically. It's childish fighting, making life miserable for him. Ishmael said, I'm going to make this as miserable. Do you have any people in your life like that? You know what? You don't need people in your life like that to make you miserable. The flesh will do it without help from anybody else. I want to move you from ritualism to going through the motions to what legitimate faith really is. When you have peace with God, God then says, now that we have peace with me, guess what I want you to walk in now? I want you to walk in the peace of me. I want there to be victory. Look at verse 30. What's the counsel? What does the Scripture say? What do we need to do then? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The flesh is enmity with God. It cannot please God, so those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. Has no capacity to do it. 
was a choice. Let's stick around and try to negotiate and have peace. Abraham's the peacemaker after all. He's the big shot. He's the patriarch. If they're going to listen to him, hey, say, son, listen to me. Hey, you want part of this inheritance? Straighten up. We think of ways. I've told you before that much of what people come to you for in Christian counseling is not to be brought to a place of victory. They come to you asking a question that a biblically person grounded in the Spirit could not answer for them. And that is, how can I indulge in the flesh and at the same time enjoy the spiritual blessing of life in the Spirit? We have to come to the point where we renounce our Ishmael and cast him out. We renounce the rights that I have to my life. One of the great tragedies of homosexuality. How many times have you ever gone up to somebody and introduced yourself like this? Hello, Andrew. I'm Lindsay Lewis, and I'm a heterosexual. You ever done that? You go around telling everybody you're a heterosexual? But yet, the homosexual. I'm gay. I'm gay. That breaks my heart. I don't say that as a matter of condemnation. I say that as a matter of conviction that we need to witness to them because it's tragic that you would take your greatest sin and your greatest struggle and identify yourself by it. But you know what? There are some of you in here that could just as well introduce yourself the same way if you said it out loud. Hello, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a liar. Hello, so I'm so-and-so, and I'm this, I'm that. No, no. Hello, Andrew, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. That's my identity. It's to renounce the old man and say, I am no longer identified by him. The Apostle Paul did it in Romans chapter 7, didn't he? He said, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. You know what he was saying? He said, I, I'm not going to. Did you know in the Christian life, this is what the devil would love for you to do and me to do. He would love for us to go through the rest of our lives being identified by our greatest sin. What does the Bible say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you. We find our identity in Him. We find our identity in Him. That's when you start to go in from the meat, the milk of the Word, and move into the meat of the Word. Let me tell you, let me tell you a, a, a great way to see whether or not you're on milk or meat. If you're on milk, you see this as a book of rules. If you're on meat, you see this as a book of relationships. If it's a rule book, don't do this. That's how I talk to Paul. Don't do that, Paul. Do this, Paul. Don't do that, Paul. Do this, Paul. That's okay while you're growing up. But there ought to come a time when you just have to, I don't have to say to Paul anymore, Paul, don't put your hand on the burner, especially when it's red. I hope I'm not telling him that when he's 14. If I am, if he's not, he didn't get it by then, we're in big trouble. It's not a rule book. It's a relationship book. It's a book of reconciliation. It's a book of redemption. That's what it's about. It hurt him to make that choice. Why don't you look at this? Let's read the rest of the narrative. Verse 9 and following in chapter 21 of Genesis. And so Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom he should board Abraham, scoffing. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible, persecuting. It wasn't just laughing and going, ha, <laughs> ha. But that was part of it. He was trying to drive him away. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the sons of bondwoman should not be heir with her. My son, namely Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing. And Abraham sighed because of his son. I want you to notice something. Get ready. Get ready. Every time that 
Ishmael is referred to in this text. I want us to look at it. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be pleasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Lad's number one. That's, he's talking about Ishmael, right? Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son, that's number two, of the bondwoman, because he, Ishmael, is your seed. He's pronoun. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on his shoulder and gave it to the boy, number four, to Hagar. And he sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy, number five, under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him, number six, at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy, number seven. So she sat opposite him, number eight, and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, number nine. Then the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad, number ten, where he is, number 11, arise, lift up the lad, number 12, and hold him, number 13, with your hand, for I will make him, number 14, a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and went and filled the skin of water, and gave the lad, number 15, drink. So when God was with the lad, number 16, and number, and he grew, he, number 17, and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He, number 18, in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother, he, number 19, took a wife for him, 20, in the land of Egypt. 20 times, 20 times, Ishmael is referred to in this text, but never by his name. You know why? Because that's not who we are anymore. That's why. That's why Paul could say, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I am not in Adam. And God illustrates that by not even using Ishmael's name not another single time. The rest of the time he's referred there. That is not who I am. If I sin, we've talked about this before. If I tell a lie, I am not a liar. I am a Christian who told a lie who needs to repent. If I steal, I'm not a thief. I'm a Christian who is an honest man of integrity, and I need to repent because I, I, I committed a sin and stole. These are not playing words. With, this not, these are not game words. This is not the power of positive thinking. Let me tell you what this is. This is the power of biblical thinking. I want you to know something. and, and you, you just remember this. I, I hope you remember this. Never in the Gospels was Jesus astonished by anybody's righteousness. Never was He impressed with anybody's education. The only thing he ever was amazed by was people's faith. That was it. You remember the Roman centurion? When he said, he sent a word, he had a, he had a uh, servant that was ill. He said, he sent some of his emissaries to go meet Christ and his band of disciples and said, have you come? Because you, you can heal him. And then he got to thinking about it. He said, you know what? He got to come. He's got to say the word and he'll be healed. So he sent word back and said, Lord, you don't need to come. Just say the word. And my server will be here. Do you know what Jesus' response to that was? Whoa! Wow! I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. The people of the Lord have this kind of faith, don't have it. This guy, a Roman, a Gentile, said, 
You don't need to bother coming. All you got to do is say the word, and that's it. What was Thomas informed of? Thomas said, hey, here's the deal. I'll believe if I stick my hand in the wound and see if he's there. And see, if that's when I believe. And Jesus said, appears on the scene, and he goes, uh-oh. He says, stick your hand in my side. Feel it. He said, Thomas, the ones that receive the greatest blessings are the ones that believe when they don't see it. You had to have some empirical evidence. You had, to, you had to be able to touch and feel. Those are not the ones that have the greatest faith. You know, in the Apostle Paul, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Isn't it amazing? Of all the things that concern Paul, I want you to look at how this is just couched in just, just these few verses right here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And look at verse 2. The Apostle Paul's got this church at Thessalonica. He Persecution broke out. Got in lots of trouble like he did everywhere he went. And God, almost overnight, birthed the church at Thessalonica. Guess what happened to them? Man, they hit the ground running. Those guys were hitting on all pistons. They were doing well. And the Apostle Paul was concerned about it. And when you read the, Paul's letters to the churches, you realize his great and deep love and concern for them. And what, he, what, what, is, what was his concern centered around? Was it considered around... It's amazing to me. I re, I'm reading a book right now uh, about... Uh, about uh, church life and discipleship and what have you and everybody will say that the church shouldn't be measured by the number of people but there should be other criteria but then the very ones who say that turn around and start talking about how big their church is and I'm thinking I thought you said that we're not supposed to measure it by that now some of you can accuse me and God knows the truth of saying well you're just saying that because you pastor a small church I promise you (laughs) oh my that has nothing to do with it but whether you believe that or not I'm just telling you, take it for face value if you can. Uh, I, I don't feel that way. It's just that I'm always confused because pastors will say, well, you know what? No church in the New Testament was commended by its size. All the churches that were evaluated in Revelation, seven of them, God spoke not one time to how big they were. But we measure church by nickels and noses, not normally. How many nickels in the offer plate and how many noses? If you go to a pastor's conference and you sit down and talk with any time, it won't be it won't be two minutes before the person you're talking to is going to ask you, how many are you running? I want to say, well, how many are we keeping? I'm not trying to run anybody off. I want to know that. What's your budget? How big is your staff? Let's see the heart of God and see what he was concerned about. Look at first Thessalonians chapter three, verse two. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, we can no longer endure it. The Apostle Paul said, I couldn't stand it any longer. i got to find out. How are you doing? We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy to find out. Our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning what? Your budget. Your faith. I want to know where your faith stands. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I couldn't stand it any longer, I got to know. I sent to know the size of your role, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might have been in vain. When I couldn't stand it any longer, what did I come? What did I want to know about you? I want to know about your faith. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love 
and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us. Now, look at verse 7. And, and therefore, brethren, in all of our affliction and distress, we were comforting concerning you by the fact that you got your parking lot paved. And now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. No, it says we were distressed, but now we're comforting concerning you. And what is the source of our comfort? What is the concern? What is not a concern? What is the concern? The condition of your faith. When I find out the condition of your faith, now I can live because you stand fast in the Lord. Now, look at verse 10. Night and day, praying that we may exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your what? Faith. Your faith. It's your faith. Have you moved from the milk to the word, uh, to, to the, from the milk to the meat? Are you making any kind of progress in that regard? Is that a big deal? Of course it's a big deal. Four times in the Bible. Habakkuk, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Four times. The just shall live by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I want you to know something. High time. That we get anchored in our faith. Faith because we're here, you hear by the word of God. We take the word and say, you know what? Whatever it says, I'm gonna take it at face value. Not some sophisticated, but not not childish faith, but childlike. God says it, and that settles it, regardless of who believes it. Jonathan Edwards committed, he had a resolution uh, that he had come up with. I forgot how many points were on it. It's, you know, I can understand half of it because he was brainy. One of them was Resolution 1. I will live for God. Resolution number 2. If no one else does, I still will. I will live for God. Number 1. And even if no one else does, I still will. I still will. Cast out the blind woman and her son. Walk in the freedom. You have a new identity. You were once an Adam. Now you're in Christ. Quotation from Jim Simmel, a guy I respect a lot. When we stand before God, why don't you listen to this carefully? I believe this is exactly true. It's not biblical, but it's biblically based. When we stand before God, we will not be asked, were you a good evangelical? Or were you a good charismatic? What will really matter is whether we honestly let God's Word shape our spiritual thinking. That's a great quote right there. What will matter, honestly, is whether we let God's Word shape our spiritual thinking. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that you offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is a reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will.
you know what the truth of the matter is? Let me tell you, let me tell you. My, my new identity is so real. I'm in Christ. I'm gone. I'm done. I'm dead. You are too. You're dead. You got a new name, as a matter of fact. You don't know what the new name is. I don't know what my new name is, but I'm excited because it's going to be decidedly male. I have to worry about getting mail from Mrs. Lindsay Lewis all the time. But we got a new name, we got a new identity, and God doesn't even recognize or deal with the old one. And the only time that we ever have to deal with the old one is when we resurrect him. That's when we resurrect him. When I call upon him to live the Christian life, or when I'm led to believe that that's really who I am. Because see here, we struggle more on the focus than the ability of God. The focus is the struggle that gets our attention rather than the God who's delivered us from it already. And that's the way the devil wants to orient our thinking. I'm old now. I'm old enough to say things like, you know what? I used to mow my next door neighbor's yard, Miss Young, and she had a yard. And it looked like it to me at the time it was 800 acres. And I mowed it with a push mower backwards in hot South Georgia sun. And got paid $4 to do it. I can't believe I'm old enough to say that now. She paid me $4. I'm mad at her. It'd be $400 now to motor yard. Years ago, there was a song that was by my favorite group, the Imperials. My children know that I love them. And we used to sing it. Our group used to sing it. It's called Water Grave. And I teed it up last night. I was in there down in the basement just listening to it and having a hallelujah hoot nanny because I'm by myself. And you can act like you want to act. You know? And I was just celebrating... This, here, are the, here, are the, here are the lyrics to this song. Now in my house there's been a mercy killing. The man I used to be has been crucified. And the death of this man was a final way of revealing. And the spiritual way to live, I had to die. Now if I let the dead man linger in me, I might get a little idle in my way. So I'm going down to the Celebration River. I'm going to take this dead man down to a water grave. I'm going down to the river, my Lord. I'm going to be buried alive. I want to show my Heavenly Father. That the man I used to be has finally died. When I think of where I'm going, in terms of where I've been, it makes me glad to know my Lord. Who you are anymore. And if you sin, it's not you who's doing it. It's the sin that dwells in you. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? Thank God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has delivered me. Amen. And I don't have to be bound by the same flesh patterns that used to bind me. And when they resurrect in my life, it's because I choose to let them. But even when they do, and if I go through a season of time when it seems like they've got a grip on me, that is not who I am. Lindsay Lewis, in Christ. We've got a reason to celebrate that this morning. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And don't identify yourself that way anymore. Because if you think wrong, you will act wrong. You are not a slave of sin. You're a slave of righteousness.
Amen.